This is a Historic England podcast, sponsored by Ecclesiastical Insurance Group. Welcome to Irreplaceable, a history of England in 100 places. I'm your host, Dr. Susanna Lipscomb, a historian based at the University of Roehampton. In these programs, we're exploring 100 locations selected by 10 different judges from thousands of nominations sent in by you. Each of these remarkable sites represents a pivotal or a pioneering development in the history of England or has a special story to tell about our country. In this episode, we're continuing our journey through the power, protest and progress category as chosen from your nominations by David Olasoga. Today, we're looking particularly at the theme of progress. To explore these locations, I'm joined by Celia Richardson, the historian Norma Gregory and Billy Redding. Welcome to you all. Our ninth location in this category of power, protest and progress encapsulates in a way both power and progress. Just over 100 years ago, Ernest Rutherford first successfully split the atom, as we say, in the physics lab in the University of Manchester, and so nuclear physics was born. Now, we've already looked at the theme of science and discovery earlier in this series, but this site, as witness to both power and progress, fully deserves to be in this top 10. Manchester University's Rutherford building was originally known as the Physical Laboratories. When built, they were among the largest and best-equipped laboratories in the world. So what do we know about Ernest Rutherford, known as the father of nuclear physics? Oh, well, in early work, he discovered the concept of radioactive half-life and proved that radioactivity involved the nuclear transmutation of one chemical element to another. Um, and he performed his early work at McGill University in Canada. When he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1908 for his investigations into the disintegration of the elements and the chemistry of radioactive substances, he was the first uh, Canadian and Oceanian Nobel laureate, which is quite an achievement. Um, and he led the Manchester Laboratory from 1907 to 1919 before leaving to work in Cambridge. And when we started this campaign, we stood outside the Rutherford Laboratory um, in Manchester and we asked a lot of local people where was the atom split um, and they mostly answered California and some of them answered Cambridge which I think is forgivable given that Rutherford did move on to Cambridge um, but yeah I mean what, what an extraordinary thing to have happened and I think we've said a few times one of one of the important things about place in Britain is that um, an event in a place gives rise to further events in that place and I think actually the northwest of England has been so important in industry in the Industrial Revolution, in things that actually involved the STEM subjects, which was, you know, what's going on here. You've got a laboratory, you've got something going on, you've got a scientific process, and of course it was going to happen in the northwest of England, where the scientific processes that have, you know, caused all sorts of reactions around the world took place. What about this lab itself was important in witnessing this pivotal moment? So, I mean, Billy, we thought a bit about architecture and form. Do you think that the design of this lab was crucial to the work that was going on in it? It was remarkably well designed and well equipped. Um, it was really carefully planned with a system of ventilation designed to exclude dust as far as possible from all the rooms, and especially from instrument cases. Many of the rooms were supplied with water, with gas and steam for experimental purposes, and with compressed air conveyed by a series of pipes, which were differently coloured to enable them to be easily distinguished. 
So it's all about design facilitating results. In fact, recognising the importance of this, in 2006, the University of Manchester have renamed the building, the Rutherford Building, in honour of its famous former resident. Um, let's talk a bit more about Rutherford's works, because his works are, of course, the reason the lab is on the list. Let's think about this idea of splitting the atom, because we, we want to be clear that what we're talking about is not the process of nuclear fission that was d- discovered later in the 1930s. Rutherford wanted to know what was inside a single atom and so became the first person to create an artificial nuclear reaction in the labs at the university. Um, We shouldn't confuse what happened with the process of nuclear fission that was discovered later in the 1930s. Essentially what we've got going on now is that Rutherford and his team became the first in history to initiate an artificial nuclear reaction. Um, We now know that the hydrogen nucleus emitted was actually a subatomic particle now called a proton. Um, And so what they were doing was they were bombarding nitrogen with alpha particles from a radioactive source. And so Rutherford became the first person to initiate a nuclear reaction. Um, Essentially, this discovery created the modern field of nuclear physics in Manchester. And it has had extraordinary consequences and ramifications, hasn't it? Absolutely. Um, and as you say, we, we mustn't confuse it with um, nuclear fission. But Rutherford himself was very, very well aware of the possible consequences of the sort of um, discovery that, that he was involved in. So in 1916, aware of the power of his own investigations, aware of the power that, that his investigations could unleash, he publicly stated that he hoped mankind wouldn't work out how to extract the energy from the nucleus until man was living at peace with his neighbour. Um, and, well, you know, we, we know what happened at the end of the Second World War. His experiments with nuclear reaction changed the world forever. Um, they, it began the move towards nuclear power and the atomic bombs that devastated Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War Two. But it also allowed us to develop things like cancer-fighting radiotherapy. One of my um, close family members has had radioactive iodine treatment, incredibly successful, um, developed, I think, in the 1950s. It's quite an old treatment and it's still, you know, proving brilliant in the fight against cancer. So there are, there are shades to this one, aren't there? As has one of mine. So we have much to thank Rutherford for. And I think it's extraordinary that something so important happened at this site. And as you were saying, Celia, people just don't know about it. I think once we start talking about nuclear physics, people start thinking really about um, other other people and other places. And, you know, now, of course, we have CERN in Switzerland. We've got, you know, really big uh, research laboratories in, in other countries. And possibly people don't think about a humble laboratory in Manchester where it all began. Uh, but it's still there. You can see it. It has a blue plaque on the wall with Ernest Rutherford's name on it. But yes, pe- people don't know it's there and they don't think of Manchester as, as the, the birthplace of nuclear physics. The progress made in Manchester by Rutherford was truly groundbreaking in the field of science and health. But our next and final location also marks a real breakthrough in progress, in this case towards equal rights and race relations in the UK. The Bristol bus boycott of 1963 is an event in British history of which many people may not be aware. It arose from the refusal of the Bristol Omnibus Company to employ non-white people in bus crews in Bristol. Here, as with many cities across the UK at the time, there was widespread racial discrimination against people of colour. 
enough was enough for a group of young black people from the city led by Paul Stevenson, a first-generation West Indian. Inspired by Martin Luther King's civil rights movement in the United States, he led a peaceful boycott of the company's buses until the bus company backed down and overturned their colour bar. Bristol in the early 1960s had an estimated 3,000 residents of West Indian origin, some of whom had served in the British military during the Second World War and some of whom had emigrated to Britain more recently. A large number of them lived in the area around City Road in St Paul's. We picked up the story of the boycott with historian Dr Madge Dresser. Well, we're in St. Paul's area of Bristol, uh, which was historically the place in the 1950s and 60s where immigrants, particularly people from the Jamaican and later the Asian communities, came. And we're right in front of a mural that's just been recently done by Michelle Curtis, a young black British uh, artist, of Owen Henry. And Owen Henry was one of a number of people who organized the first black-led campaign against the color bar in Britain. It was called the Bristol Bus Boycott, and it happened in 1963. There was a labor shortage after the Blitz in, in Britain. Uh, people came over here, they had been recruited, and when they came, they didn't get the warmest reception in the world, particularly after 58 and the Notting Hill riots. Uh, and they were looking for work, but they were very frustrated because they uh, couldn't get uh, work on the buses. Uh, there was open discrimination. I guess people forget that in 1963, it was perfectly legal to say, don't want you because you're black or you're Irish or what have you. A friend of Owen Henry's, Roy Hackett, who's a co-organizer of the bus boycott, his wife applied to be a bus conductress, and she was just refused. And they knew there was a shortage of labor. And what happened was the bus drivers, the white bus drivers, were very worried about um, foreign labor undercutting their skills. And, you know, they saw it as economic competition, but there was also a racialist element. They'd been raised in schools where you had Empire Day and, and looked upon, uh, you know, black people as, um, you know, inferior. And so what happened was uh, in the 50s, one of the bus depots, the bus drivers themselves in a local uh, uh, transport and general workers branch, voted to ban black bus drivers and conductors into Bristol in the early 60s, a young man of part West African, part English origin, Paul Stevenson, came. And uh, he was very canny. He was a naturally good organizer. And he got Guy Bailey, another local guy who was 18, he was a Boys Brigade member, he was uh, you know, a churchgoer, to apply for a job by phone. And they said, yes, come for an interview. And then he let known he was West Indian and the, uh, the interview was withdrawn. And so Paul had a case. So what happened was that Paul Stevenson and uh, Owen Henry and uh, others like Lloyd Hackett, they uh, formed a ginger group called the West Indian Development Agency. And this was a, a direct action group. And uh, so this new agency, they called a boycott. When the Evening Post in the Western Daily Press went to interview the um, a bus company about it, they were just open about, of course we discriminate, you know, we don't want colors. It was as open as that in those days. It just seems amazing now. People had to get to work. They had to earn their living. So a bus boycott was a big ask, but really it was a publicity, which Paul Stevenson was so brilliant at getting, that uh, began to make uh, waves because everyone from Harold Wilson uh, to Sir Leary Constantine, the famous diplomat and cricketer who lost his job by his political in involvement in, in, in siding with the bus boycott uh, people. Uh, they all got involved and it, it, it splashed into the national press. By August, the company 
kind of relented and said that they would end the color bar. Now, whether they did or whether they kept a quiet quota is another question. But I guess the important thing was it began to change the culture within the country. Now, whether it directly led to the first uh, race relations legislation in 65 and then in 68 is a moot point. I think it, it was a contributing factor. But it was really important uh, as one of the earliest black-led uh, campaigns in Britain. Norma, what was Britain like for black people in the 1950s and 60s? And how did we get to the state of having a colour bar instigated by the Bristol Omnibus Company? Well, it's well documented that the history of people of African descent, black people in Britain, um, starts thousands of years ago. I mean, David Olasuga's work into uh, black British history, books by uh, Paul Gilroy, um, Trevor Phillips. Uh, there's a lot of literature and a lot of fantastic re- research that that's been done um, documenting the, the social history of blacks in Britain. Um, but this one particular uh, kind of episode really starts from the 20th century. June 22nd, um, 1948, we see um, Empire Windrush, which is basically a a ship containing uh, people from the West Indies, mainly Jamaicans, but there were Trinidadians, Barbadians on there. There were all all sorts of uh, people from all over the West Indies. They were invited to Britain um, to help rebuild the country following World War II. So following the bombing um, and all the kind of, there were lack of men really since World War II and World War I, many men were were killed and um, it was up to many people from the colonies to come and help rebuild the country. So um, coming to Britain, they had to find work and they wanted to find work. They wanted to help their mother country because they were taught in the Caribbean that Britain was their home was their motherland and the 1948 nationality act granted them citizenship to all the all the people from the colonies so they they were british they felt they were british and they were helping to to build the country so many people from the uh, caribbean and the african colonies they came to england and they dispersed throughout the country many lived in bristol nottingham um, where i was born my father came in 1962 my mother followed him in 65 and they uh, we had a big family and and settled here so but bristol was a a key place where many um, people came many of the uh, the white british um, people living here felt uncomfortable with the influx um, at that time so they it kind of helped to kind of build the flames of uh, racism really um, seeing so many people around and doing jobs which normally uh, you know their fathers or their, their parents had done like for instance coal mining or working on the trains or the buses so we had this kind of uh, pressure pressure pot cooking really um of, uh, of racism and and this story um in bristol i mean it's fascinating what happened there where does the bristol omnibus company come into this they they were a company a government company um run in bristol and they operated a collar bar that was basically 
practice of not allowing black uh, or Asian people to become part of the bus crews, basically conductors or drivers. So they basically said no, no to any kind of people that were non-white to do these particular jobs. It is extraordinary, isn't it? There's a need for labour, and yet, of course, that racism is so entrenched that they're refusing positions. So, what what's the reaction? What happens? Well, um, the the local union, the tra- Transport and General Workers Union, they actually uh, believe that having uh, coloured workers would be a problem. So, you'd have thought that they would have fought against it, but they actually thought that it wasn't right at that time, um, believing that um, every wheel wheel would stop. Um, if they had uh, black or Asian uh, staff. Um, so so with that, really, they had a, a real kind of uproar in the black community. Um, and we had uh, activists actually step up and say, no, that's not right. And, and one of these was uh, Paul Stevenson. So Stevenson, who had a father from West Africa, he decided to try and test the system and see if he could prove racial discrimination, didn't he? How did he do it? He set up um, an interview for one of his friends, a a young man called uh, Guy Bailey, to try and apply for a job. And he was well qualified. He was a a student and um, able person to do this job and had an interview and uh, went to the interview and was told that um, he wouldn't be getting a job as the company didn't employ black people. So um, this really actually sparked off um, a big protest in the city. Students from the university supported the uh, protest march that went on. Um, local MP uh, Tony Benn, he declared that he uh, would stay off the buses um, and, and take use his bike instead. So it was actually a massive um, event that, that promoted change actually from that and going on at the same time was demonstrations in america as well obviously you got martha luther king um standing up and protesting and against the the bus systems in america uh, with the refusal of rosa parks being uh, not being allowed to to sit on the buses as well so in fact we've got this sort of set, recreating a bus boycott in bristol just as you've seen a boycott um, in Alabama, in the United States, because of what had happened to Rosa Park. And there is absolutely that sort of parallel, of course, um, with what's going on with Martin Luther King. Um, so there's a, a, this boycott, there's a, a claim that none of the city's West Indians would use the buses and many white people would support them. And was the boycott successful? Yes, it was. Um, August 28th, 1963, it was announced that there would be no more discrimination um, on the buses. Um, and it was at very much at the similar time to, to Martha Luther King's famous speech um, in Washington. It, it really did change things and it did um, promote equality. I mean, we, I believe we, we're still a long way off there. Um, but, you know, it was a, a massive step forward. What happened as a result of the bus boycott in the long term? What changes have we seen since 1963 when this happened? Well, two years later, the UK Parliament passed a Race Relations Act, which made racial discrimination unlawful in public places. 
Um, and this was followed by the Race Relations Act of 1968, which ex extended this from public places to housing and employment. Um, and the enactment of this legislation has been cited by some as having been influenced by the Bristol bus boycott. And I think it's probably um, difficult to overestimate how much this has affected other forms um, of discrimination, how much it's helped um, all sorts of, of groups to advance um, their, their, their minority rights, basically. So hugely important, really, and, and, and does seem to have had a very profound and long-lasting effect. I mean, it's a crucial moment in having that in in legislation to that you cannot that you cannot discriminate in public and then later in private places um, to say that you know that that had to be said at some point and it had to be fought for um, and Stevenson himself what happened to him Order of the British Empire <laughs> he was appointed as an officer of the Order of the British Empire in 2009 which is actually very recent when you think about it for his part in organising the bus boycott and Bailey and Hackett were also um, awarded OB and he's still going strong. Yes, he is. He's 83 now and he's a very well-respected and celebrated person in, in Bristol. He's a very famous name that everyone knows in Bristol and around the country as well. Paul, if you're listening, we salute you. As a result of the actions of this small group of determined men, race relations in the country began to change, though slowly. They ensured that progress was made and they peacefully, determinedly campaigned for every person's right, no matter what their colour, to be treated equally and fairly. This campaign for equality across race, gender, sexuality and disability continues today, of course. So there you have it. What an end to this category of power, protest and progress, and indeed to this series. This was the final podcast in Irreplaceable, A History of England in 100 Places. Every episode is now available to download as a podcast. Thank you to my guests, Celia Richardson, Norma Gregory and Billy Redding, and of course our judge for this category, David Olasoga, for joining me on these last few podcasts. Keep on talking about important places on your doorstep using the hashtag 100places, that's the number 100. I'm Suzanne Lipscomb, and thank you for joining us throughout this series. If you want to stay in touch, you can sign up to Historic England's newsletter by visiting historicengland.org.uk forward slash newsletter. This is a Historic England podcast sponsored by Ecclesiastical Insurance Group. When it feels irreplaceable, trust Ecclesiastical. Ecclesiastical.